This live recording by Bill Stevens Productions is copyrighted by Romance Writers of America, all rights reserved. Distribution of unauthorized copies or file sharing constitutes copyright infringement under the Copyright Act. Now it's time to welcome our first speaker. Is Chris, uh, our only speaker, <laughs> is uh, Christy Craig, also known as C.C. Hunter, a New York Times bestseller, is an Alabama native, a multi-published writer, motivational speaker, and a writing teacher. Author of 30 books, she brings humor and heart to all her works. She currently hangs her hat in Texas and writes the best-selling young adult paranormal romance series, Shadow Falls, published by St. Martin's Press Griffin. When she's not writing her young adult novels, she's working on her humorous romantic suspense novels under her real name. Learn more at www.cchunterbooks.com or www.christy-craig.com. Thank you. Okay. I'm odd. I really didn't think anybody would be here. I mean, so thank you for coming. How many in here have heard me speak before? Think y'all can handle the mattress story again? Okay. I I like to tell a story because I am a storyteller more than I am a writer. And I always like to start you off with something light. So I'm going to tell you a story about my husband. Now, I want you to know first and foremost that I love my husband. He is a wonderful man. You're waiting for the butt, right? He does have one flaw. He is cheap. Now, anybody who knows him and loves him says, Christy, he's not cheap. He's frugal. And I tell them, You don't know him like I know him. He's got short arms and very deep pockets. He's Scottish, and it takes a lot to get into those pockets. But years ago, he proved to me how much he loved me. I live in Houston, and have you ever been in Texas, in Houston, in August? Okay, you know how hot it is. Now, this was years ago. My air conditioner went out in my car. And I went to him and I said, sweetheart, my air conditioner's out. And in my mind, I knew what he was going to tell me. He was going to look me right in the face and say, Christy, if you'd just wait a couple of months, you wouldn't need an air conditioner. (laughs) But that was the day he proved how much he loved me. He said, no problem, sweetheart. I'm going to rent you a car, and I'm going to take your car in to be fixed. Now, this was before cell phones or Internet. So immediately he got on the phone, that landline thing, and tried to figure out who offered the cheapest car and the cheapest fix on an air conditioner. And it was Tomball, Texas. So we're heading down to Tomball, Texas, and I get lost going around a block to start with. And he says, follow me, and I follow him, and we drop off the car, and then we get in and we go get my rental car. Does anyone in here remember what a Festiva looked like? (laughs) That thing basically had pedals, okay? And he pulls out on 249, which at the time was 55 miles an hour. Do you know how long it takes a Festiva to go (laughs) 55 miles an hour? So I'm going along, driving along, and I finally, almost 55 miles an hour, and all of a sudden I see in front of me the cars are going ping, ping, ping. Well, there's no ping room for me, okay? And then I see it. Right in the middle of my lane is a full-size mattress. Now, I want you to know I am a writer. I do write sexy scenes, and I have a quite of an imagination. So you know what you do when you run over something? The first thing you do is you look in your rearview mirror. When that doesn't work, you try the side mirror. There was only one problem. There was nothing there. Now, like I said, I have an imagination. And I think I imagined it. So I'm keeping on going until my car starts sounding a little funny. 
And I decide I need to pull over. But do you know what you cannot do when you have a full-size mattress jammed up into your wheels? Your tires will not turn. Now, sooner or later, 249 is going to turn, and I'm not. But Tomball is that country town, cowboys. Well, I finally pulled over, oh, after a long time, and I get out of my car. Now, remember, I'm a lot younger, and I'm a lot cuter. And a good old boy cowboy pulled up in his pick-em-up truck. He was laughing so hard, he fell out of that truck. He's got the boots, the cowboy that uses a specific concrete. He looks at me, and he says, sweetheart, let me tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to get down here, and I'm going to hold on to this mattress, and you're just going to drive off of it. Well, now I have a vision of me driving down 249 with a cowboy hanging on. So I get in the car, and he says, go, and I do. He says, no, hon, really, go, and I do. He says, sweetheart, go. And I look back at him, and I say, look, this is going to do your ego worlds of good. You are stronger than this car. (laughs) Now, eventually, we did get the mattress out from under the car. Unfortunately, it wasn't until after it caught fire. (laughs) Now, my husband is cheap, but he does love me. And when I pulled in that driveway about two hours later, he was pacing, and he met me. And he said the wrong thing. He said, where the hell have you been? And I looked at him and I said, let me tell you it like this. It was me, a good old boy cowboy from Tomball, Texas, and a mattress. And before it was over with, that mattress was burning hot. And I didn't explain that for a few days. Okay, I got you laughing. That's what I want. Now, I like to say I will entertain, educate, and motivate. And remember, one out of three is not bad, and you've already had your entertainment. (laughs) But let's move on to the education portion. This talk is about five things that I think helped me in my writing and take it up to a new level. It can be... Look, you can take these things and look back at your work from what, you're do, what you've done, or you can start and keep these in mind. First of all, we're going to talk about how to make your settings and descriptions work over time. Everyone here understands point of view, do you not? Okay. Deep point of view is like going inside your character and understanding it so much. Now, if I held up, pretend I have a china teacup, rose, moss rose, a little gold around the edge, and it's beautiful, and it's tiny, and it's delicate, how would you go into your head of your character, one of your characters right now, and describe that cup in your head for me? What would they say? Anybody want to give it a shot? Think of a delicate... The roses reminded me of my mama. Very good. She did something that's very important that most of the time authors, as authors, we don't do. Now, she used her character to describe that. How many of you would have said it was beautiful, gold rim, but she said what that character, what that cup reminded them of. You went deep point of view. How do you think a five-year-old little girl who just got her first play tea set would describe that cup. Can you see? Can you envision it? How do you think a very thirsty 13-year-old boy would describe that cup? How do you think a 400-pound fat-hand football player would describe that cup? How do you think Jeff Foxworthy would describe that cup? Okay, you're laughing, aren't you? All of you are laughing. Why are you laughing? Because you know 
Jeff Foxworthy, don't you? Okay. From Australia up here, doesn't But most of us know Jeff Foxworthy. And what do we know? We know his voice, right? And so we can figure out what he says. You need to know your characters as voice as well as you know Jeff Foxworthy. When you describe something, it has to be important. If you just describe something, at the least, it's vague. Okay? Vague. If you go into what that means to that character, and some people tell me, you know, Christy, that's all fine and good, but my character doesn't think anything about that teacup. (laughs) Don't describe the teacup. Find something that it will tell something about his voice. Now, uh, we did some role playing. Let's get there. Like I said, point is, if you just describe something in your novel, that is the least vague point of view. When your description causes reflection upon your point of view character, when your work in the role, when you're working in the role playing technique, that deep point of view, it helps. Tell a story. How many in here, I hate descriptions. When I first started writing, I loved dialogue. I hated descriptions until I realized how they could be used. Do you know when you go to a movie and you're sitting there and the movie just starts and that camera goes over a sweep of the room? What happens if it goes over a drawer that's pulled open just a little bit and you see that gun? What do you know? That gun's going to come out of that drawer, isn't it? Think of your descriptions like that camera. How many of you go to a movie and the music starts, whether it be or whether it be a love song, somebody's fixing to get kissed, somebody's fear, somebody's fixing to be frightened, something dangerous approaching? Think of your descriptions as that music. It helps tell your story. And don't mess with, I mean, only in Texas, I realized that I hadn't used a scent in my book in a while. And scents really can help go into deep point of view. So I had my hero walk into his father's house. Now, my hero in this book had been falsely accused and set up for a murder actually was a cop, went to prison for 18 months before he was released, exonerated. And he comes out, and during this time in jail, his mother died. And he's angry about that. Not only did they rob him of that time, they robbed him of the last few months with his mother. Now, he goes to see his father, and he knocks on the door, and he walks in. And I had to use some descriptions. And I decided to use some sense. So he walks in, and the first inner thought was, it didn't smell right. Isn't, in fact, a weapon. Smelt bad. It's just, it didn't smell like lemon pledge anymore. It didn't smell like cookies, like his mother would always bake when he came over. Now he walks into the room, and now I have to describe the room, right? I could put anything in that room I want, right? Anything. But I wanted to help those descriptions set a mood. So when he walks in, the curtains are drawn and it's dark. And his father is sitting in that old lazy boy chair that his mother threatened to throw away year after year. He was staring at the TV. There was only one problem. The TV wasn't on. There were six beer cans littering the coffee table and the old photo album that his mom put together of all their years together. Now, do you see what my description did? If you're going to describe something, make it work, okay? In Born at Midnight, I also write uh, C.C. Hunter for uh, Shadow Falls series for St. Martin's Griffin. And in that one, my heroine is 16 years old, and it opens up, and she's standing in the kitchen listening to her parents argue. And she thinks, 
Maybe if I go stand in the doorway, they'll see me and they'll stop acting like kids and stop making me act like an adult. I right, went over this. Sherlock and Irene just needed to describe the room because it's not my critique group writes white walls, white walls. All I see is white walls. So I had to describe that room. I could have put anything on those walls I wanted. But her problem was that she called her mother the ice queen. She didn't think her mother loved her. But it wasn't so about her father. But it wasn't going to last because today was the day he was moving out. And she didn't understand that. She didn't blame him for divorcing his mother. But why was he divorcing her? And as she walked in that room, she looked on one wall, and there were nothing but father and daughter photographs of every summer trip they had ever taken. There were no mother and daughter photographs because there were no mother-daughter trips. Why was her father leaving her? Do you see the description sets mood, motion? Find a way to make that count. Okay, let's see. The next one is using the character's path. How many in here uh, have uh, heard Donald Moss? I love him. I love that man to death. I've taken his workshop. It's great. But... He says one thing that I don't agree with, and if you tell him I said this, I'll tell him you lied. Okay? But he preached at this one workshop, backstory goes to the back of the book. Backstory goes to the back of the book. Now, I agree with him. We generally start our stories way too early. But when the backstory is what motivates the character, you need that. We all have a past. Our past shapes us into what we are, our fears, our joys, our goals, and our morals, and all of it is generally connected to our past. We all have friends, triumphs, tragedies, ex-lovers, ex-spouses, embarrassing moments, secrets we'll never tell, and lessons we'll never forget. We all know that backstory can be the death of a book. And yet, just as big of a mistake that some writers make is not giving their characters a past. Don't take the reader to the past. Don't do flashback. Bring the past to the reader. I believe it was uh, Solstein who called it flat, thought flashback. They are one or two sentences that tell you something about that character and its past. Let's say you were writing a story that your heroine was scared of water, and you know this scene inside and out. You want to write that scene because when she was nine years old and she sat down in that boat with her mother and her sister and a guide, and they were riding in those waves and that water, and, and her mother was nervous because she couldn't swim. And then the guy driving the boat had a heart attack, and they started panicking, and her sister fell in, and her mother screamed, and she sat there and watched her daughter drown. And this girl, the sister, watched her drown. You think that would be such a great flashback, and it probably would be. But flashbacks are taking the reader back. So how do you do it? Easy. She goes across a bridge. She looks over, tries not to, because every time she sees a body of water, all she can hear is her sister screaming as the murky water pulled her down below. Now we've got maybe three or four sentences, and you've given that past. It's a thought flashback. From now on, you don't need to tell the reader why she's afraid of water. Remember the pictures on the living room wall through the setting? What did that tell you? The past. 
It gave the motivation for that character. Another way to actually help your writing and to show characterization and to improve your book is through internal thought. And this is so important. I love internal thought. Now, what I want to do is to read you some passages and show you how I bring the past via dialogue in internal thought. Dialogue and internal thought together, such a powerful tool. And without internal thought, dialogue can almost just do nothing. Uh, let me read this. This is just a short scene from a guy, let's say he's around 50, and it's his first date with somebody that he works with, and she's asked him over for dinner. And he's about to leave. It's Jack and Mary. Dinner was good, thanks, Jack said. You're welcome. I love cooking for people, Mary answered. We should do it again sometimes, Jack added. That sounds like a good idea, Mary said. Now, as you can see in that exchange, there were no personal data that really hinted at a past. In real life, we might be able to get away with this. But in fiction, what's on paper must be intriguing, interesting. It should make us curious and offer us a glimpse into the character who's speaking. So let's change it just a little bit. I haven't had a home-cooked meal since dot, dot, dot. I love those dot, dot, dots. And do you know why I love them? Because that tells you, oh, shit, I was about to say something I shouldn't. Okay? So you read, I haven't had a home-cooked meal since in a long time. Thanks, Jack said. That pause tells us there is something more to the story. Mary answers, you're welcome. I haven't had anyone to cook for in a long time, Mary answered. Now, her answer not only tells us that she's a nurturer, but it starts to hint at a past and creates questions about why she's alone. I know we're both really busy, but we, could we maybe do it again? Now, his answer gives insight to his lifestyle and his past and creates the question of what keeps them so busy? How about tomorrow, Mary asked. While her answer didn't tell us about her past, it does offer us insight into her personality and gives us gives my point of view character, and this is so important, something to play off of and think about. Oftentimes when we write point of view, and those of you who think, oh my God, I want to write, I don't want to write just singular point of view. I need both of their point of view in this scene. I mean, I've been there, I know. But the thing is, you don't have to put it in one person's point of view to give us insight about her. We don't hear people's point of view when we meet them, and we make assumptions. We feel like we know them. We read their body language. No one, you don't have to go, excuse me, I am totally insulted, and I think you're a big bee with an itch. So I have to know what they're thinking. We know that, don't we? You know it because you are watching them. So let's Read it a little bit more and see how I changed it with some internal thought and also showed you the point of view character. I haven't had a home-cooked meal since dot, 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 uh, in a long time. Damn it. He had almost brought up Helen. The last thing in the world he wanted to do was bring up his ex-wife. It was the first rule of dating, his brother had pointed out. Never, ever mention the ex. Thanks, Jack said. You're welcome. I haven't had anyone to cook for in a long time, Mary answered. Jack saw the way her smile faded just a bit, and he couldn't help but wonder why Mary was alone. She was too damn pretty and too good of a cook not to have men pitching tents in their front yards. Or was there something about Mary he didn't know? Perhaps. But until he knew for sure, he wasn't walking away. I know we're really busy, but could we maybe do this again, Jack asked? He held his breath just a bit, knowing this was the moment of truth. If she wasn't interested, she'd come up with some excuse 
a reason that she couldn't find the time right now. His stomach tightened just a bit, and he realized how much he really wanted her to be interested. How about tomorrow, Mary asked. The moment the words were out of her mouth, he could tell she wished she hadn't sounded so eager. But eager was good, because even though he was a little afraid of getting hurt again, he was lonely. It was time for him to move past the disastrous life that he had lived this last six years. Heck, maybe tomorrow he'd kiss her. Or maybe he should do that right now. You see how from a few lines of dialogue that wasn't interested, we included internal thought, we included point of view. Now, let's go one step further. You could have added some setting in there. I love writing that scene when my hero first walks into the hero, her house or my heroine first walks into the hero's house because they notice things. I mean, men, women will go in your bathroom cabinet and check what's in there, okay? That we notice things. Have them surmise who this, this person they are about to go out with or to see by using internal thoughts and setting. Maybe he saw a picture of Mary and a guy set back just a little bit. Or what if he saw a picture of Mary and somebody cut out of the picture? Do you see how what we see can describe and help tell your story? Adding emotional depth. If a character is dealing with loss of a loved one, a divorce, a lawsuit, this issue will be on their minds and in their hearts. You can't tell me in chapter one they are in chapter one that they are mourning themselves sick and then not mention it again until chapter twelve. The death of her sister was tearing her apart. No, it's not. She hasn't even thought about her. We don't want to write when we write about serious issues, you say you don't want to beat them over the head with it. You don't want to write about a depressed book. But at the same time, your character is depressed. So how do you write that book and show that emotion and that feeling without beating the character over the head? Think of the emotion sort of like a worry stone that you slip in their pocket. It's there. Every now and then they're going to touch it. Every now and then they're going to feel it, the heaviness of it in your pocket. But every step they take, they're not going to think about that worry stone. Remember that one's emotions are reflected by what they notice and how they react to the world around them. When you are lonely, you see nothing but happy people. I mean, you see couples holding on hands, walking together. It hurts. I use this in my, uh, one of my books, I believe it's uh, Texas Hold'em, that a hero, uh, the heroine's friend had gone out to, for an ice cream with her son. And she was sitting there with her son, no husband, and she was watching this couple lick the same ice cream. And it was like she just sat there and stared until the, her own ice cream was dripping on her hands. And she tells a friend about it later on, and she says, I want that. I want to share an ice cream with someone. I want to have that power that they had. What we notice is so important. When you miss your recently deceased mom, you notice all the other older ladies at the grocery store. Everyone you see will remind you of your mother. You may see them try to reach up for something, and you'll wonder if somebody was there to find, get, pull that thing off that top shelf for your mother, like you will do for that woman. If you have cancer or have a scare, you will see the woman with a scarf tied around her head to hide the fact that she no longer has hair. When you have emotion in your life, how you see the world will be different. It's so important. Settings and what you see and how you describe it help tell your story. In uh, Reborn, my first book in a Shadow Falls series, I started the, the story with 
Della Tang put one leg out of her window and looked up at the eastern sky at the sunset. Bright red, bright pink and greens and purples lined the sky. And it was a beautiful sunset, but it did not tell you anything about Della. Nothing. So I changed it to a red, bright red strip of color lined the sky, the color of blood. She needed to feed. Her mouth watered, but later she had something to do. Stella's a vampire. So by using just the color, I brought who Stella was. Remember that how you feel, what you have your character see. Know the emotion your character needs to feel. And then have them see something that will remind them of that emotion. How many have seen a person have an accident on the freeway? You know? That stays with you. So have what they see, what they notice, reflect what's going on inside of them. You don't have to go into it at length. Just that mention of she sees her. If it's grief you want to remind the reader of, that this person is still grieving, but you don't want to have her cry for page after page, have her go to the grocery store. Have her see someone. Have her see if it's a husband she lost. Have her see an older couple holding hands and think, there was a time I thought that would be me and John. Find things for them to see to bring the emotion. I believe Carl Iglesias in his book, Writing for Emotional Impact, was the one who said, a reader reads to feel something. If you are not putting emotions on the page, you are not doing your job. Every scene you write should have emotion. When I feel as if something isn't working in a scene, I go and figure out the emotion that is driving the scene. Not knowing the emotion in a scene is like driving around in your car but not knowing where you're going. Does this mean you can't have more than one emotion in a scene? No. But if you add too many, you can weaken the effect. And you also need to make sure that you have shifts that moves the reader from one emotion to the other. How many remember Still Magnolia? That scene where uh, she, as at the funeral and she's crying and she says, I just want to slap someone. And, and who is it that puts... Go ahead, slap her, slap her. We turned from serious to humor so quick and it worked. And if you can do that, go for it. But it can be very hard. You almost need transitions from one emotion to the other. <coughs> Years ago, I was judging a contest, and it was obviously a very sexy book. And the heroine was in bed, and she was having very sexy thoughts. And then she rolled over on the pillow, and she could almost smell her five-year-old son on the pillow. And it was like, ooh. <laughs> You took me from sexy to, to mother, and that doesn't work. So know if your emotions need... Now, both of those things would work. But you needed a transition from one emotion to the other. And if you have too many emotions in a scene, you're weakening them. So be careful. Sexual tension versus sex. When I was asked uh, to come and write... How are we doing uh, when I was asked to write a young adult, some people asked me, well, how did you get into young adult? And I, I tell them the story honestly. I did not come here. I was drugged here kicking and screaming. Um, they came to me and asked me to write the young adult paranormal series. And the first thing I know out there was, have you read me? You know, I write very sexy, steamy romances. And she said, of course I have. And I said... Well, I got to tell you something, and I don't know if you know it, but I don't write young adult. And she said, you don't write young adult yet. And I said, I don't read young adult. And she said, you don't read young adult yet. And I said, I didn't read young adult when I was a young adult. <laughs> and she said, I can't fix that one. <laughs> and I said, why do you think I can do this? And she said, Christy, that one's easy. It's because you're a smart ass. <laughs> <laughs> 
and teens love smart asses. And I told her, my mama told me that was never going to get me anywhere in life. <laughs> but my mama was wrong. So when I started writing these for teens, I had to figure out what was the sexual place. Where was I going to stop? I did not want parents egging my house at night. And so I had to figure out how far I would go. But I knew no book would satisfy any hormone-raged teenager if there wasn't sexual tension there. So I really discovered more so in writing that how to create sexual tension from holding someone's hand, from having, and I do this quite often, and I love it. Um, it makes my knees go weak uh, when I write this scene where the hero, uh, a young hero, slips his hand around her waist and just slips his thumb right up there on her waist and feels her naked skin right there. It's very sexy, but it's just a waist. It is sexual tension. Remember, sexual tension can come on by several ways. Internal thought is a great way. We can't say everything we think, but by God, we think it. So find a way to bring those thoughts in. For female readers, sexual tension is to a romance novel what foreplay is to sex. It is the teasing of the seduce and seducing of the senses that leads one to feel desire and feel desirable. Sexual tension is achieved when a reader becomes absorbed in the sexual awareness and emotions of the hero and heroine. It's when your reader just keeps turning pages waiting for these two to finally get together and get naked. Sexual tension is the build-up or the foreshadowing of the sexual encounter. Even in romances where the hero and heroine may never consummate the relationship, Sexual tension is essential to the reader's pleasure. Dialogue is one of the best tools a writer has to build and show sexual tension. Dialogue can be blunt, it can be oblique, and it can be misunderstanding. Blunt. During a heated argument, the heroine asks her, her brother's best friend, What the hell do you want with me? His unexpected reply is, You, naked, in my bed, happy to be there. Is that, and what, that's what I wanted, and is that too much to ask? Now, if you want to go less oblique and set it up and you go, what do you want from me? A brother friend smiles, what do you think I want from you? Do you see how you, just by changing it, you can be blunt, you can be oblique, you can be misunderstanding. You can be misunderstanding. I love doing this. There's a commercial that stole this from me. And when I see it, I go, that was my line. And it came out years ago. But I had a heroine who had a cat named Lucky. And she was having to pack up her stuff because he was coming there to protect her. People were shooting at her. And he was telling her to pack up. And there was sexual tension just building and building. And he walks in there, the hero does, and it's in his point of view, and he looks at her, and he's watching her, and he sees the bed, and she's got her suitcase open, and she's throwing in her underwear, and he, she's just standing there looking, and she turns around and says, do you want to get lucky? And he says, uh, yeah, but now might not be the right time. And she looks, and she goes, no, my cat, in, in, in the box, get him. <laughs> so you can find ways to make it funny and make it misunderstood. I believe, again, it was Solstein that wrote, don't, di good dialogue doesn't tell a story. Good dialogue creates questions. Questions. Instead of saying, hello, how are you? I'm fine, how are you? You say, hello, how are you? And somebody says, so you haven't read the morning paper yet. It creates a question. So you haven't heard. Oh, you haven't talked to Joanne yet? Good dialogue creates questions. Heated stares can start a sizzle. It's said that people who are attracted to each other will hold a stare twice as long as those who are not. I forgot who said it, but someone was quoted saying, the first thing a man noticed about a woman is her eyes. And as soon as he realizes she's not looking, he looks at her breast. Use those stares 
let the guys get caught staring at what they shouldn't every now and then. Watch out. There's a point where it becomes crude, and there's a point where it is sexy. So don't cross that line. Sometimes what's sexier is not the blatant touch, but that simple touch. As a YA writer, and I have sexual tension in all my books, but I do not have sex. But these guys feel a hand slipping under the under a shirt. They feel the holding a hand. And believe me, it is very sexy. Another method of adding sexual tension, and it is it's just to hear what they're thinking. Again, go in those internal thoughts. Tell the reader what they're thinking. We all know what men think, okay? And make sure your men sound like men. And, not, and when they're thinking, they usually think crude thoughts. So make them lovable still. We, can t- we might have to slow them down just a little bit, but make them lovable. The next thing is creating hooks. Huh? Okay, good. I'm doing good. Uh, most writers will tell you that the biggest compliment they can get is that a reader has stayed up all night reading. The way a writer achieves this is by writing hooks. Oh, God, I remember. I, when I first met my agent and I was writing, and she was always saying, you know, I need a bigger hook. I need a bigger hook. I'm not, I finally told her, I am not a hooker. Okay? <laughs> I am a writer. But she was right, and I finally learned how to do this, and it's so important. You need to open a book in a hook. You need to end a scene in a hook. You need to open the other scene with a hook. And a chapter ending needs a hook. Chapter beginning needs a hook. We need to find a way. As writers, we really should not tell a story. We should create questions. That's your job as a writer, is to create questions in the reader's mind. Um, Somebody once told me this, and it did, not, it did not hit me until they said it, and I went, oh, my God, they're right. Because the biggest compliment I get is, I cannot put your book down. I read till 4 in the morning. That is the biggest compliment I have ever had. And someone said, never, ever put somebody at the end of a chapter going to bed. Because the reader will go, that is a good idea. Because how many of us read in bed? Don't give them that. End it on something else. Uh, one of my editors changed my scene placement and stopped it when they were falling in bed asleep. And I said, no, you can't do that. That's where the reader will put the book down. So make sure. Don't use the same hook. A noise shattered in the silence. Don't use the same one over and over again. It's okay if you're going to use it and then change it up. But don't do it. Uh, adding suspense. Um, and avoid gimmicks. I mean, this is, I never will forget, I judged a contest one time years ago, and it started up with something along the lines of, her mother was right now rolling in her grave because of where she was. And I thought, ooh, 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 I like this. And I actually put that, saved it to read at the end, because that's the hardest by the time you've read a few. And so I got to it and read. She was at a silent auction. She never said why her mother would roll over in her grave. I never knew. And it was like, okay, somebody told you to write a great hook at your opening, and you did, but it didn't have anything to do with your story. <laughs> Find the hooks that matters. Know what, what it is. Use it. Sometimes the best hooks are questions by the character themselves, and I use this quite often. Oh, my God. Now she knew he was lying, but what the hell was she going to do about it? Now, that's it. You want to know, the reader goes, yeah, what the hell is she going to do about it? And they'll turn that page to find out. Questions are great hooks. Okay, let's see. I've entertained you. I've educated you. And now I'm going to motivate you. I hope I've educated you. And if I have, it's two out of three. Don't forget. How many in here have gotten a rejection? You know them. Have you? You get them. Some of us now get them electronically, or some of us don't get them at all, and I hate that because I got here by these rejections. Rejections are a stepping stone. They got you, get me where I am today. These rejections are what made me. Now, people say, okay, Christy, and they're just learning. A lot of people don't, didn't know I exist until today, and that's okay. I'm not offended. 
but a lot of people say, I didn't know she existed. And they say, why, she's an overnight success. And let me tell you, I am a success. And I'm telling you this, not to brag, maybe just a little bit, but I made more money last year than I made in my entire life. Okay? I've sold movie rights to my, to my story. I hit the New York Times. I've hit the USA Today. I've hit it in other countries. You are an overnight success. Well, let me tell you, I started writing in 84. I sold my first book a short 10 years later in 94. And then I didn't sell another book until 2006. That was 23 years. I want to know what night it was that I became a success. <laughs> Rejection stings, but they count, and they matter. But this is your dream, isn't it? You know, I thought when the first time I got a rejection that it would mean that I wasn't any good, that it was time to give up. Now, I want to tell you, as I'm dimpsing these rejections, a little bit about myself. I quit school at 10th grade. I got married at, night, at 16, but I was an old maid because my mother got married at 13. By 18, I had a, 18, almost 19, I had a child. I am dyslexic. Some writers say that as a joke, but I really am. I can't spell. I just couldn't spell writer when I wanted to. I make a lot of mistakes. Some of these rejections, they felt like somebody said, don't quit your day job. They didn't know that my day job was waitressing, and, you know, it wasn't that good either. But I had a dream. If anything, I had a story to tell. And I made a lot of mistakes, a lot of mistakes, people. You want to hear my worst mistake? It was in a contest. It did not go to my publisher like this, but a contest, and it did go to an editor. It was, he looked down at his bloody shirt. It was a perfectly good sentence. Actually, it was not it was a whole good sentence. It was just one word. I left the R out of shirt. <laughs> and he had been there for quite a while behind the shed. And so the comments I had was, so he has internal injuries too? <laughs> Do you see what you're doing right now? You're laughing. You've got to laugh at your mistakes. I laugh at mine. I laughed all the way. These rejections hurt. We know they do. We can laugh now at the mistakes that we've made. But this was my dream. A girl from Alabama couldn't spell writer, couldn't spell shirt, <laughs> who wanted to be a writer and tell a story. I wasn't going to let them stop. I used to think, when I got to 100, that that was when I would stop. That was when I would say, no more. I'm not doing this. I'm not any good at this. They're right. But you know what? I got to that 100, and I said, the hell with it, you know? This is my dream. I'm not going to let anybody take that away. People ask me, Christy, why didn't you stop? And I said, I wanted it too bad. And they say, when is it time to stop? And I said, when you don't want it that bad. If you want it, don't you give up. The truth, the hard truth is, some of us in this room are not going to make it. But guess what? We write characters, don't we? Do you want to be that character in your book who died giving it everything and never gave up? Or do you want to be the quitter that you write about? Which one do you want to be? Before I sold my second book in 2006, I told my husband, if I die before I publish, I want on my gravestone that she never gave up. Now, you know, people say, well, how did you keep going? I did it by several ways. And you know what really hurt me was the little bitty rejections. They couldn't even give me a page. <laughs> and even after all these, how did I give up? Now, I, these are not all books. They're all articles when I started writing articles. But I didn't give up. 
why? How? You know, what about after all these times of people telling me, what did I do? Well, I'll tell you what I did. I said, the hell with it. You know what? I'm an author. I'm a writer. And I'm not letting anybody take my dream away. I didn't care how many, how many they told me. This was my dream. I wanted it that bad. Do you want it that bad? I don't want anybody in here to say, you know what? I give up because I couldn't do it. Let me tell you, if you want to do it, just do it. Don't give up. And when you get another rejection, it hurts things. If a girl from Alabama who's dyslexic and has a 10th grade education can make over a half a million dollars, you can too. <laughs> now, a lot of people... A lot of people ask me, okay, Christy, I really don't believe they're all rejections. Come on. I invite you to come help me put them back in the, in the sleeve. <laughs> but I don't invite you to touch the rest of these, and there's a reason. When I take that, I do this thing at home, I do it in a box, and I took it home, and I set it in my office, and my cat jumped up top and tittled on him. Now, I want you to know I couldn't even get mad at him. I felt the same way. <laughs> This on them. This is my dream. My dream. No one is going to tell me to quit. I'm going to keep at it. Don't give up your dream, people. Hold on to it. Thank you so much for coming. Hey, God, I'll take you five minutes for questions. Any questions? Wow. No? Okay. I did MC the, the, golden, the Rita's, what, in Atlanta? I believe it was, yes, I did MC them that year. They had me up there making a fool out of myself. So. <laughs> but thank you all so much for coming. I